Welcome back to the Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa, episode 36, featuring (laughs) our third guest host. (laughs) Everybody, welcome Kelsey McInnes. Hello. She has very graciously agreed to tune in from Northern California to help me record our 36th episode. I am super excited. I was actually like waiting anxiously for my opportunity to be on the show. <laughs> like, so Melissa, you're uh, taking guest hosts now, huh? <laughs> well, luckily we have a lot of open slots because as I had mentioned in our last episode with Brad, this uh, podcast basically has no end in sight as long as women are alive. <laughs> I like it. So I could be doing this till I'm 85 and there could be like, I don't know, 2000 episodes before I die. Well, I thought that I had my person chosen and then I actually ended up switching it. So that means I already have someone on deck. Nice. (laughs) Nice. So you just let me know when you're ready. (laughs) All right. I'll let you know. Um, So for anyone out there wondering who the hell Kelsey is... (laughs) Her and I actually um, met in San Francisco when we went to San Francisco State University. I think it was probably 2007 that we met. That is correct. I always tell people that we were roommates, (laughs) which we were for a very, very, very long time. Yes. But um, we didn't officially meet as brand new roommates at SF State. We, I think I was on like the second floor and you were on the sixth floor. Yes. And then like six months into my residency on the second floor, Mm -hmm. I moved out with my mattress and moved (laughs) into the floor of Kelsey's dorm room on the sixth floor. Yeah. And And there were (laughs) not two, not three, but four of us living in that sweet little 12 by 12 dorm room. Yes, and my mattress was on the floor, and I slept underneath your bed, and then when it wasn't nighttime, I think we, like, pushed my mattress all the way underneath to bring back the floor space, and then we pulled it back up when it was bedtime. It was a tight squeeze. We made it work. We got to know each other very well at the raw age of 18. Yeah, we sure did. (laughs) And then we lived together... Every single year since until I left San Francisco, right, I think I was 25. Yeah, was it 2013 that you left? In 2014. 2014. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a long run. There was a point, I think, in like one year we lived in three different apartments. Yeah, and not all by by choice either. Certainly. Um, But I think the worst living arrangement we probably had was in our super, like, dark vampire cave of a sublet. Yes. There was a lot of bad experiences had there. (laughs) Where the bedroom was, like, a typical normal-sized bedroom. However, we both had, I think, full-size mattresses at the time. And we shared the bedroom. And we had, I think, only a cup width of space between our mattresses. But may I remind you, it wasn't the first time that we had lived in that style. 
because in our Park Merced bedroom, we had the same setup. And if you remember, we both had like the wide but short dressers and my grandpa had to come to stack them on top of each other and safely drill them to the walls so they didn't fall and kill us. So we had pretty much a wall of dresser. I don't yeah. even know how we got to the top shelf because it must have been like six feet high. A wall of dresser and a floor <laughs> of bed. Yes. Yeah. We Ooh. really, we really maximized our space. And luckily, um, all these years later, we finally have our own rooms. Me, I have my own house. So we've, we've made, we've made progress over you the years. You leveled up for sure. I mean, I still live in a cave, but at least I'm in it alone. So you, so Kelsey still lives in San Francisco, but today she is in San Rafael um, doing a little house sitting in a nice, beautiful, giant, rich person's house where she has all the freedom (laughs) and silence and space to record this episode. Yeah. And lots of animals hanging out with me. Nice. Which is the are, best part. Are we going to hear any barkers tonight? I don't know. They're actually like the most chill animals I've ever met in my life. Nice. There's two cats and two dogs. And the dogs actually like willingly just go to their beds and sleep. Um, They're both in their beds right now. Are um, they old? Um, I don't think they're that old. One of them, the pit bull, does snore a lot. So you could hear some snoring. <laughs> but... <laughs> I think that's the the worst we're gonna get. Okay, cool. Um, well, are you drinking any wine? Oh, I am drinking wine. Oh, right, I just made well... an awful screeching sound dragging my wine across the counter. I'm drinking a red wine today. It's a pretty nice wine glass. Well, I'm at a rich person's house. <laughs> <laughs> so today I am drinking um one of my favorite brands of wine from the grocery outlet. I fucking love the grocery outlet and I came on to make a pitch for not only the grocery outlet but also this great wine app that I've been using so KB who is a friend of ours um you know is what you might call a wine connoisseur right she loves wine I know very little bit about wine either like I like it or I don't and that's it um I do enjoy it but I don't really like get into it quite like that and KB herself has acknowledged that I have amazing luck at the grocery outlet I always pick the best wines and it is because my strategy is to see which wine was formerly the most expensive so I'll show you the two prices yeah I'll be like $3.99 and then it's like was $18.99 I do usually ball out on like the six or seven dollar bottles but um I look at the ones that have the biggest price differential, right? So there could be like a $7 one that was $9.99 or like a $7 one that was $22. I'm like, that's the one I want. So that's my strategy. Usually it works. Uh-oh. Today I'm drinking a Passages Pinot Noir, and I actually did not use my price analysis on this bottle. I have bought it previously, oh. and so I knew that it was one that I liked. But I will say, I've also started to use this app called Vivino. Are you familiar? No. Because I think you need to get on it. Um, You scan a bottle, like in the grocery store, and most often it recognizes them. I've maybe had a couple that it didn't. And it gives you a rating and, like, reviews of 
the bottle. Interesting. So I use it at the grocery outlet, and I will say that today, just before our podcast, I used it on my Passages bottle that is marked as being $18.99 regularly priced at the grocery outlet, and it said that the average price reported was $9.99. Wow. So... I'm a little bothered <laughs> that the grocery outlet was lying grocery to you. outlet is has been deceiving me, <laughs> and now I'm pissed. But I still like the passages Pinot Noir. <laughs> okay, I have like several comments to make on this entire thing. Could you tell I rehearsed that? I was like, okay, these are all the things I'm gonna tell Melissa about the wine. She needs to know that. <laughs> So first, first comment is I am honestly shocked and dying that KB, somebody who's like a total wine connoisseur and has like, doesn't she like have like wine winery memberships oh, yes. and like wine club? Like she has like 85,000 yes. wine bottles in that she background. She has, yes, you saw them last time you slept amongst them. <laughs> <laughs> there was barely room for you in the guest room. Yeah, to think that somebody at her level of wine bougie would even admit that you have great grocery outlet wine selections. So, but that's the thing. Grocery outlet is known for having great wine and beer deals. Wow. So you got to like, you know, there's shit stuff there too, which there is everywhere, but they actually do have good stuff. You know, I don't think we have a grocery outlet down here. I went to a grocery outlet up here in Novato, and it was so much fucking nicer than the shithole by my house in San Francisco. Well, we don't have any grocery outlet here. To my knowledge, I've never seen one. Well, the grocery outlet's a couple blocks from my house, and my roommates, I just moved, they call it the gross out. (laughs) That's the name. The gross out? The gross out. Like the grocery outlet. The gross out. (laughs) Anyways, I totally just derailed and hogged that no, uh, wine it's review. Completely fine. <laughs> it's completely fine. That's how that's how the episodes go. So now I need to hear what you are sipping on over there. Okay, so um, I went even lower class than the grocery outlet, <laughs> um, where I had to stop and get gas on my way home today. And I knew I wouldn't have time to stop at, like, a good place for a good (laughs) bottle of wine. So I had to go to the Chevron wine Gas station wine. (laughs) But I actually ended up with a very good bottle. So I was lucky because I only had three options. I had... I thought you were going to say you only had $3. (laughs) (laughs) Three options. I had a garbage-ass Chardonnay, which I'll never drink. And then I had a barefoot Pinot Grigio, which I've literally consumed, like, at least three thousands of those bottles in my uh-huh. lifetime. So I'm like, I can't do the podcast dirty yeah. and review that shitty wine. And then the third option was this uh, Starboro Sauvignon Blanc New Zealand wine. Ooh. And it's the bomb.com. Ooh, I like the bottle. I know. It's very, like, seashelly. Yeah. I feel like we're about to go surfing. I love it. Um, I like the ombre. Yeah, it's ombre out. <laughs> um, but it's a 2018 Sauvignon Blanc. And I always love the Sauves from New Zealand. Um, almost more than the like Australian kind. All right. Um, but it's super bomb. And it has a very crisp, appley, peachy fruit flavor. That sounds great. 
But the problem is that when I get a good wine on the podcast, you drink I tend to drink it all. I have mentally prepared myself to drink this entire <laughs> bottle of wine. So <laughs> I will be there with you. And that's why I got this giant glass. I love it. It's <laughs> called a Bordeaux glass. Ooh. Tonight it's a Pinot Noir glass. Fuck yeah. <laughs> okay, so should we start? Yeah. Let's did you do, do you have do you want me to go first to ease it in? How are you feeling? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I can go okay. first. You can go first. Okay. I was like, I didn't know if I should go if I just want to like go get it over with, but I think I'll get a little more wine in me. Yeah, and then I'll get go. some more wine in you. <laughs> um, and that will make when it's time for you to go much more seamlessly. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay. So I picked somebody today that I think you would really like. Ooh. So my selection, I always like, especially now that I have guests, like I always like, I feel like it's so foreign for people to just hop on a podcast one day and start recording out of the fucking blue. Because mm-hmm. it totally is. Yes. <laughs> so I'm like, how can I make this more seamless? So I'm starting, which I didn't do this until Brad. Um, but I'm starting to try and pick people that I think will resonate with the guest to yeah. kind of just like help assist conversation and make it more seamless. And so I think you're going to like this person, not because you have like a personal relation to what she does, but because I feel like she's very outdoorsy. Oh, okay. And you're into very <laughs> outdoorsy things. I love it. And I feel like this is a hobby. That you could potentially love if you decided at one point in time to pursue oh, it. Wow. My yeah. my ears have perked. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to give a little bit. Of, I'm just going to say who my woman is today. Okay. Give a small little tiny description of who she is because I have no doubt you won't know who she is. And then I'm going to tell you why I'm covering her. Okay. And then I'm going to go into her story. Okay. I'm so. Ready. Today, I'm covering a woman named Lynn Hill, and she is recognized as one of the best female rock climbers in the world and considered the world's most accomplished sports climber during the 80s and the 90s, winning over 30 international titles, including five victories, and she is recognized as helping pave the way for female climbers. Wow. I am excited. And I saw you've been doing some climbing. I know, which is why. (gasps) I love it. Now I'm going to tell you about why I picked her. So my boyfriend used to rock climb a lot when he was younger. And he's trying to like get back into it because it was something that he really, really loved. And for whatever reason, like lost touch with it Mm -hmm. and like probably, you know, was missing that hobby that he loved so much. So he's been getting back into the rock climbing gym and he gets a guest pass like once a month. So I only get to go once a month (laughs) (laughs) for free at least. But I've been able to go a couple of times with him and I am really liking it a lot. I love so that. we just go to like a generic rock climbing gym, but they have like two different uh, options of rock climbing. One is called bouldering where mm-hmm. you just have like, a, you know, a little like little rock sort of fixture that has little handholds on them and you climb up. And then there's the giant wall where you can like belay on a rope and climb. And so I've tried out both and I think I like bouldering a lot more, but 
it's such a cool activity because it's like obviously not only fitness and act like active related mm-hmm. but it's very mental yeah and like strategy and it's also almost like puzzle pieces in a sense which I think like not a lot of sports have that element of it and so I think I've found that really fun about it is like kind of combining the physical activity with like the mental strategy and then um it also works out the most insane muscles that I don't think people typically ever use <laughs> unless they're rock climbing. Like these ones. Yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> I don't I do, even know what those are called. I do like a lot of different <laughs> sports and physical activities, but yeah. after one, after my first rock climbing experience, I was feeling some of the most intense, <laughs> just like sore muscles in areas I didn't even know I had. And I was, like, thinking, like, fuck, this is pretty cool, like, to be working these parts of the body that I've literally never worked in the 30 years I've been alive. I don't know. There was something about that that I was, like, I think we're supposed to be doing this. So, anyway, that's why. Okay, so then that brings me to part two. So, okay. now that he's getting super and back involved, we now have to watch, like, every single rock climbing <laughs> documentary on the face of the earth. <laughs> One of being a documentary that's called Valley Uprising, okay, which is where I learned about Lynn Hill. So awesome. I was really lucky to have watched this documentary, which taught me a lot about the history of rock climbing and when it started and how it started and what that community was like, which again brings me back to why I'm talking about this with you, because I think it's going to remind you of a large portion of our lives while living in San Francisco. Oh, Okay. So I shall begin. Bring it now on. Now that I've introed for six <laughs> minutes just about my woman. Okay. So Lynn was born in Detroit, Michigan, but she actually grew up in Fullerton, California. Oh. And she Fullerton. was the fifth of seven kids. She became a gymnast at age eight, but she disliked the way that girls had to smile and do cutesy little routines on the floor. Um, but she still continued to be a gymnast. And during high school, she became one of the top gymnasts in her state, a skill that eventually contributed to her climbing success, being that she had to con- conceptualize a series of complex movements and to thrive under pressure. In 1975, her sister took her on her first climbing trip, and she was immediately hooked. But Lynn was only five feet tall and weighing about 100 pounds. However, she had powerful arms and shoulders from being a gymnast, but she also had really small hands that gave her an advantage of slipping her fingers into the tiny nooks of the wall. So even though her size um, brought some challenges later in her life climbing, it was also a huge asset for her. Um, rather than, like, other larger, bulkier people that try to climb, rock climb. So as a young teenager, she climbed in Southern California, primarily in Joshua Tree, and she earned money for day trips by working at Carl's Jr. Lynn discovered she was really into bouldering, and she had stated at one point, quote, I discovered the heart of free climbing movement in its purest form, Climbing was beautifully freeform and spontaneous, each movement being different from any other. So she took her first trip to Yosemite at age 16, where she was introduced to the climbers at Camp 4, which was a very notable rock climbing hangout. 
In the summer of 1976 to 78 and the early 1980s, Lynn frequently camped at Camp 4 in Yosemite Valley, becoming a part of the climbing community centered there and joining the search and rescue team. So, about Camp 4. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This was a place where dozens of the most famous rock climbers in the world had congregated, and they would all live there and camp there and rock climb there so that they could learn from each other and try out new ideas on the Yosemite walls. However, it was literally a campground space that was basically like a squatter's village for rock climbers who were considered social outcasts and living like gypsies in Yosemite. Oh, San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) And what I mean by this is they were full-blown raggedy Ann, basically homeless people living out of tents. They didn't pay any camp fees, even though this was like, you know, a national campground where tourists come and like rent out their space with their trailer and have their kids come like frisbee and shit so (laughs) they didn't pay a single camp fee ever they were overstaying their welcome in the park they were getting hammered and raging balls they were living as what people called non-conformists and they were absolutely hated and despised by the park rangers so The crazy thing to me is that, like, when rock climbing as a hobby and sport, like, tip, like, in some capacity was invented, Mm -hmm. it was literally invented by social outcasts that, like, didn't fit in with society, and so they took off to Yosemite to live in the forest, and that was the hobby that they picked up while living out there remotely. That is wild. Was it mostly men out there, or were there other women? Yes. Okay. Like, all fucking Raggedy Ann men. And... Another reason why you came to mind when I learned about Lynn is because in this documentary, there's a lot of really, really awesome video footage of Camp 4 Mm -hmm. in its prime. And it looked like Shakedown Street at a Grateful Dead show. (laughs) That is exactly what I was picturing when you told me about the camp. Lot. (laughs) Or a stroll down Hate Street. Yeah. It it was basically and like the first thing I said was like those people are deadheads like there's like <laughs> absolutely no chance in hell that this isn't a group of deadheads in Yosemite. And so remind me what what time was this now like what decade um, or year in the seventies? Okay, so I think it was like well so rock climbing started like way before the seventy like the seventies mm-hmm. but based off of this documentary that I was watching like at least in terms of Yosemite being like a massive rock climbing area that kind of movement kick-started with these non-conformist gypsies so like most non-conformist and outcasts the park rangers were fucking pissed (laughs) and they were like we need to get these disgusting dirty ass hippies out of here but they wouldn't leave and so during this time period, Lynn was fucking hanging out at Camp 4. And she was young. I mean, I think she was only like maybe anywhere from 16 to 18 oh years old. And at one point, she had told the story about how she survived in Camp 4 for like an entire summer on only $75. 
And what the camp floor would do is they would basically, as a community, recycle leftover cans, whether they Mm -hmm. were, like, their own cans from drinking beer or, like, the tourist cans. And they would use that recycling money to buy climbing ropes. And they would literally eat food that was left over from tourists in the campgrounds. Oh, my God. (laughs) Including just, like, straight-up condiments. Ew! Just a big old packet of ketchup. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. So they were like, there was no money and they were just living. How do you even have the energy to rock climb? Like, where are the calories to burn if you're eating condiments? No clue. No clue. I mean, I don't, and I think, like, people like Lynn, like, how it mentioned earlier, like, she would work at Carl's Jr. and stuff mm-hmm. and, like, get a, like, save up as much money as she could and then head out to Camp Four and, like, live out there for a while. So I don't know what everybody's situation was like, but I assure, I'm sure that some of them were, like, full blown homeless and others were, like, coming yeah. and going. So another quote from Lynn about this time in her life, she said, These dirt poor days were among the best and the most carefree of my life, and though my friends were often scoundrels, I felt their friendship convincingly. (laughs) Which also reminds me of uh, Deadheads. So, (laughs) as you had mentioned, Camp 4 was predominantly male-dominated, and there was often pressure on the women there to perform to the men's standards. There was, like, no real female climbing community, other than the random women that happened to be interested in rock climbing that mm-hmm. would hang out at Camp 4. And they basically, like, didn't really even have their own female cohort. So they'd kind of just adopt these, like, masculine attitudes that the other male climbers had. And, like, F- Lynn at one point had described her feeling like she was living amongst this, like, fraternity of men. And she was just, like, this outlier female that kind of, like, had to be a tomboy to fit in with the vibe that was happening at the camp. But while she was there, she learned the essence of her climbing technique from a group called the Stone Masters, which basically meant um, she, she had, like, a traditional climbing style, which uh, followed these guidelines that you... Instead of using, like, bolts, so, like, a lot of rock climbers will, like, hammer a bolt mm-hmm. into a mountain and, like, you know, cl- use that yeah. to climb, and then they, like, leave them behind. And so the Stone Masters, as well as Lynn, didn't believe that that was a good method for the environment. So they sort of, like, I guess adopted these removable, removable protection devices so that they were not leaving behind any, like trash so yeah. to speak or like like kind of like the idea that like you go into the forest and you leave with what you came with yeah. and so that was like something that was very very important to her in her climbing career and she also became a dedicated free climber which meant that she would climb an entire route without hanging on any rope or relying on any kind of com- uh, equipment whatsoever oh that she would terrifying. literally <laughs> just climb up a rock like wall with just her hands and feet oh my god yeah Uh, no thanks (laughs) it's a little gnarly yeah uh but that was something that she really loved so at age 19 she became the first woman to scale a wall called ophir broke in 
I probably am saying all this wrong. I don't know how to pronounce shit half the time. <laughs> but it looks like it's Oph- Ophir Broke, and that was in Tullerud, Colorado, in okay. 1979. And the accomplishment proved to herself and everyone else that she was more than just a good climber. She had potential to be great. So to finance her climbing lifestyle, Lynn competed in a TV sports competition called Survival of the Fittest, which was a test of athleticism (laughs) over a series of physical challenges. And the grand prize money that she won four years in a row Holy shit. financed her lifestyle, and she was able to begin traveling and competing in Europe for sport climbing. Four years in a row? That is crazy. Yes. Do you know how much she won? I don't like know what the, what the total was? amount was, but she won crazy four years in so a row. so badass. Yeah, I know. She was pretty gnarly. And, like, another thing to mention, which I didn't mention originally in my notes, but since it's coming up, Camp 4 wasn't just, like, this big raging party of, like, dirtbag fucking, Mm. you know, degenerates. They literally, like, created their own personal training there, and they worked out all the fucking time. Like, and I'm talking, like, (laughs) like insane athleticism was happening that like when they weren't climbing they were just like doing pull-ups and sit-ups and running and like training their bodies so that when they did climb they had like the most insane strength and ability to conquer these walls that they were climbing sounds like like they were everything they did was like about yeah the goal pretty much a good climber so lynn was just like fucking kicking ass since she was probably (coughs) (laughs) <laughs> 16 <laughs> so yeah so then by the time she was like you know living at camp four getting all swollen shit climbing all these mountains <laughs> then she like hit the reality tv survival of the fittest and just like slayed like where four the fuck years. did this girl come from <laughs> well and she was a gymnast as a child yeah. you know which gym- gymnasts are like insanely yoked yeah so like i mean she has not been fucking around her whole yeah. life with the fitness realm of things and so, yeah, she won, like, four years in a row. She was able to go to Europe to start doing all these other competitions there, and she continued to win cash prizes in Europe as well. So early on, when she was younger and a climber, she was pretty much a fearless climber. But after a few death-defying experiences, Oof. she learned to be very wary of failing, One of these experiences included a really, really, really terrible mistake that she had made in 1989 while climbing in France with her new husband, who was named Ross Rafa. So she reached the top of a 72-foot Styx wall, or that's what the wall was called in France, and she called down to her husband, Russ, asking him to belay her down the mountain. And when she let go of the wall for him to lower her, she just kept falling, like, at rapid speed. My God. And she crashed through a tree and landed between two boulders. And miraculously, she lived to tell the tale, but had to be helicoptered off of the mountain. Holy shit. What happened? Had he not, like, started to do what he needed to do? No, she didn't do what she needed to do. And that was put like she literally forgot to do the safety knot on her own oh, rope in her my own harness god. <laughs> oh my god yeah and That's so wild to think too that someone's like that experience like this isn't just like a hobby but like this is their life 
Yeah. That, and like, that's what they it's said. It's one little thing that yeah. you forget that can be, like, fucking life-changing or life-ending. kill your life. Like, that's insane. And people were like, it was the most amateur move somebody at her level could have ever made. Which, it's just like, how that's, does yeah. that happen? I have no idea. Maybe you get, like, a little overconfident, I guess. Yeah, I maybe. Forgetful in the moment. Like, like it just kind of becomes, like, routine, so you're not, like, thinking about it as much. Maybe. That's nuts. Yeah. So, luckily, she didn't suffer anything except for a broken ankle and a wow. dislocated arm, other than, like, a bunch of bumps and bruises. But it took her four months to rehabilitate from her injuries. Oh, wow. And once she was healed, she literally hopped back into the competition in 1989 um, with more wins than any other female climber at that time Holy period. Shit. She got healed. It's just and then a little just, speed bump. Just jumped back into the game and literally just won everything. That is crazy. One of these things, um, so like the ne- one of the next things that she did after this injury was she competed in the World Cup, uh, which was in Lyon, France, and that was the first time that she, well, to her, she claims that this was the first time that she felt like she finally silenced sexist because she scaled the same difficult course as her male competitors and did it successfully. And she felt like that was the first time in her career that she could finally, like, look at the public in the eye and be like, go fuck yourself. Like, I deserve to be here and I'm just as good as all these other dudes. Had other other women competed with men at that level or was she kind Um, of, like, trailblazing? I'm not sure. I don't know. I'm not 100% sure. I know that there's one very famous rock climber that came even before Lynn, like, I think in the 1940s. But, like, the evolution of rock climbing is insane. Yeah. Like, it started off with, like, I mean, things that, like, we could never even dream of doing. But, like, who somebody today would look back and be like, oh, really? Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. So, so, regardless, though, for her, it was, like, monumental. Yeah, it was huge. Um, which that's, like, again, watching this documentary, it, you really, it's, it was so, like, for somebody who literally has never even thought to rock climb in my life, I watched this documentary and was like, holy shit, I just, I never even knew anything about the history of rock climbing yeah. and, like, literally how historical it is, even just culturally. It was so interesting to learn about these different types of people and how they dedicated themselves and all these different milestones the generations took and kept growing because mm. like the shit people doing are doing today like is literally like magician stuff like you wouldn't <laughs> even believe it's real so it's super it's so cool you should definitely watch it um so Lynn ended up, so obviously, like, as you've already learned, she's won everything, be all of the fucking, you know, milestones to be, best woman ever, won all the titles, all the money, so on, so on. So she ended up finally giving up rock climbing in 1992, but not just give up climbing, it's because she decided she wanted to concentrate on often, or she wanted to change her focus from rock climbing to, like, remote climbs in exotic places. So instead of, like, so she was mainly, like, competing. Like, there was competition and she needed to reach some goal and whatever, get it done in this time at this level of difficulty. But, like, she did that. She was done with it. And now she just wants to be, like, out in the wilderness and just climbing for fun, really. So she has done remote exotic climbs in Vietnam, Thailand, Scotland, 
Kyrgyzstan, Australia, Japan, South America, Italy, Holy and Morocco. Shit. And <laughs> she's not fucking around. She's not fucking around. And in 1993, she became the first person to complete a free ascent of what was called the nose on El Capitan, which again means that she climbed only using her hands and feet, which like she was allowed. So it's extremely dangerous, like basically, especially at this time period, people weren't really doing that. And so extra precaution was being taken which you won't even see today for people that are free climbing there's no precaution it's like free climb and if you lose your grip you're dying like that's basically the only option but when she free climbed the nose she did free climb but she was allowed to take rests at what were called belay stations so when she'd get to that station she could clip onto a rope and like rest chill chill, (laughs) you know like take a breather like kick back her feet holding on to something for three minutes (laughs) yeah so they did have those belay stations for her um and then she also had a climbing partner that was there that was belayed up and secured so that if she fell they could potentially like catch her on her way down i mean great but also like what's the (laughs) likelihood of that happening (laughs) I I have no idea. So she did have those two safety options there, but she literally still gonna give it to her. (laughs) The entire climb, free climb. Um, she got she managed to do the entire thing, and she she climbed sections that had never before been completed without the aid of equipment. Wow. So she was the first person, not only woman but person, to free climb the nose at El Capitan freestyle. That's dope. Insane. So as if that wasn't enough, she returned back to that same portion of El Capitan, the nose, the very next year in 1994 and climbed it again in less than a day. Holy shit. (laughs) Which like beat her original (laughs) for his record. (laughs) That is insane. So... And I I tried to look this up more, but according to what I read online, her free ascent of the nose has not been accomplished by any other climber to date. Wow. So I don't know. I mean, there are people that are free climbing insane shit, so I don't know if they just haven't done the nose yet or what. Yeah, I feel like I've heard about people free climbing El Capitan, but but not that section then. Yeah, there's like a portion of this mountain, that, and I think the nose is the edge. So, like, where the mountain kind of, like, comes to a point, you're climbing around the point. So, the point is, like, facing you, and it goes like that, like, kind of like a triangle. So, you can't even really see, probably, like, half the shit that you're grabbing. Probably not. It's just, like, dexterity and, like, feeling and being one with the rock. Yeah. I don't know, dude. It's nuts. So, in 1999, she led an all-women climbing team to Madagascar to accomplish a first asset of the 17,500-foot granite wall at Tassaranoro Massif, and the route was the most difficult rock climb ever established by a team of women. Lynn eventually became sponsored by North Face and has won over 30 international titles throughout her career. And after 10 years of recording notes about her life, she published her autobiography called Climbing Free, My Life in the Vertical World in 2002. She ended up divorcing her husband, Russ Rafa, who I had mentioned earlier, in 1991. 
because Lynn wanted children, and I don't think that he did, but they also struggled to find time to spend together because she was so, like, in her climbing career that she was just out and about all the time. So that relationship ended, but she ended up meeting a new partner named Brad Lynch. I don't believe that they're married, but they are partners, and he's a chef, and she ended up meeting him on a climbing trip in Moab, Utah, and they lived together in Boulder, and at the age of 42, Lynn gave birth to a son. Go, Lynn. At 42 years old. Hell yeah. And she was quoted to say, I feel that right now it doesn't have to be all about me and my experiences. I was ready to begin a new role, to face new challenges and adventures as a mother. It's a good learning experience adjusting to the sacrifices that need to be made. And that, I love that. is Lynn's life. What a badass lady. I know. Isn't she crazy? I love it. So I was taking notes when you were talking to me just to like help me follow along. And I have had a giant glass of wine now. (laughs) But when you told me that she had a baby, I wrote 42 and I wrote, go Lynn. (laughs) Well, it like, I I, like really wanted to include that because like, I feel like she dedicated so many years of her life to this passion. And then she had this husband and she decided she wanted kids and he didn't. And that's one of those things where we're like, you're late in your life as a woman Mm -hmm. and you want kids and you you don't have the partner that wants to have them with you. And the time's fucking like ticking. Yeah. And sometimes. I think that she did find somebody that later in her life that was able to give her a baby at 42 yeah, she and I think for a lot of women, everything. the opposite happens. Like, you just settle and think that, you know, your time's passed and this is the hand you've been dealt, and she I didn't mean, take it. And she lived her entire life living her passion, yeah. and then now gets to live, like, the second part of her passion, yeah, which her is new being chapter. a mother and having kids. I love that. Pretty cool, huh? What a badass. Yeah, I also love that she was from Fullerton. I know. Yeah. And there was like a lot of other bits about her story that I didn't include in the notes just because I try to like, you know, not have a nine hour long presentation. Yeah. But like just a couple other pointers. She ended up going to Santa Monica College and she like majored in biology. And she also at Santa Monica College at some point became like an insane like sprinter for the college and won all these insane competitions and like landed Santa Monica college. It's first ever win. And some type of like, I don't even know what kind of run it was. Some crazy running thing. Um, You know, what's interesting though, that you say it was a sprint is that sprinting and running are like so incredibly different that runners are usually like really, really lean mm -hmm. and thin and sprinters tend to have like a lot more muscle mass. Really? Um, And so, yeah, because you're, you're using your muscles differently, like, because sprinting is kind of, like, I guess, more impact in, like, a shorter amount of time, where, like, running, you're, like, you know, needing to last longer for, like, long distance running and stuff, Um, so it actually, like, kind of, I can see how her being a climber would actually help her to be a really good sprinter. Yeah, and then she also set one of the first world records in weightlifting. Wow. (laughs) Also, I could see the parallels. <laughs> <laughs> she just like hit so many insane physical. That is so in her badass. Life. 
I mean, outside of just, like, kicking it in Joshua Tree and Yosemite and, like, fucking raging at Camp 4. Like, she's just had the craziest life. And then when I was reading her story, like, one of the things I was thinking of is that, like, someone like Lynn living this totally unconventional lifestyle where you don't have a career, so Mm -hmm. to speak, and instead you have this, like, hobby that becomes your passion, that, like, becomes a career in a sense but it's really not even a career it's more of like a sport and then she just she just has lived this like totally unconventional lifestyle where sometimes I'm like why the fuck don't I have an unconventional (laughs) yeah that is all of our dreams right can I just do something that I'm really passionate about and someone please give me money for it goddamn desk (laughs) 40 plus hours a week Okay, so if you could do that, what would your thing be? What would a thing no be that you idea. did all week and someone gave you money for? I have no freaking <laughs> clue. I don't know what mine would be either. And I think that's the problem is that some people are born and they ex- immediately yeah. have what you that just have the passion. And it like totally. like her, she just started it immediately and it mm-hmm. clicked and it worked and it just never ended. Yeah. Where it's like so many other people have to think hard about what is my thing and then they yeah. try to make things their thing and then it just doesn't pan out because it's not their thing. I don't know. I think well, it's just like luck of the draw. As shitty as it is that we don't have those things. <laughs> I've always, always been like, I have to have a job that I'm like so passionate about and I love so much. And I finally settled into the reality that that is um, not totally realistic. And also, you know, people like Lynn are really lucky, but I've also thought about like, that's kind of a a privileged like approach to life. Like tons of people work at really shitty jobs because everyone has to and you know, we all have to make money and survive. So well, and while we can't be famous rock climbers <laughs> and make lots of money, we can still have fun hobbies that keep us going, you well, know, outside of that. I think that there's always that. the, like, catch-22 to everything where, like, to us, Lynn could have this, like, dream of, fr- like, a freedom lifestyle, an mm-hmm. unconventional lifestyle. But, like, she could have been missing a lot of other very totally. elements that maybe others of us have that she can't have due to her strange lifestyle. Yeah. Like and I mean, even like ships or family or children or whatever. Totally. And even you talking about like her giving up that like competitive climbing just to go like be free and climb on like her own terms. Like that's something she was missing out on Yeah, because she was doing all this competitive climbing, you know? So the grass yeah. is always greener, right? I know but her, her grass seems really green. <laughs> Literally, her grass is green. <laughs> surrounded by greenery at like 40,000 feet. Super green grass. Okay, so before we started recording, I told you that I pulled up a cheat sheet of astrology. <laughs> and I've been looking for this for like days, and everything I find has like these really long descriptions. And I'm like, I need like the basics. This one is almost too, ba- too basic. There are literally two adjectives for every sign. Honestly, her <laughs> sign and whatever adjectives are listed there might make you know what it is. Wait. Because in my personal opinion, Lynn is an exact replica of her zodiac sign. Okay. So it's possible that the two adjectives next to the sign <sighs> might might be like, yeah. That's okay. Right. I'm going to say that she is either a... Sagittarius or a Scorpio? Those are both very excellent guesses. <laughs> but they are wrong. 
Very close. <gasps> okay. Okay. She what do we got? Capricorn. Okay. What does it say next to Capricorn? <laughs> One of them says organization. So like maybe Boring. not. I mean, she might have been very organized. I would argue maybe that finding, you know, the right place for your hands and feet while climbing (laughs) takes that skill. But the other one is ambition. And I see that that would very much describe Lynn. But she probably also is some of some type of a Sagittarius because she 100 percent is such she's that, too. It's like so let me tell you what it says next to these. The Sagittarius is adventure and independence. Nice. That was yeah. my first guess. That's a perfect guess. And then Scorpio is passion and intensity. So, yep. another. Good. Um, this is from dummies.com. <laughs> Not sure how reliable this information is. <laughs> well, just to further elaborate, Capricorns are known to basically be relentless in terms of their... Um, uh, not only just careers, but it, anything that they're interested in, they will do it until they have perfected it and okay. become the best at it more than anybody on earth. Okay. And I feel like Lynn ba- basically nailed, it. nailed that. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Thank you for introducing me to Lynn. And make um, sure you watch that documentary because you'll love it. I will. Valley Uprising. Yes. I have it in uh, my notes. I think that's right. Is that correct? Probably. So Nikki and I actually went bouldering a few times when you were in Utah back in the day. No, in oh, okay. at a gym when she was still in SF mm-hmm. at Planet Granite, and I loved it. Also, I've never yeah. done the belay because you have to get like certified. But you have inspired me to go try it again because I probably only did it like five times, but I really liked it when I did. Um, so now I I feel ready to go tackle those boulders again. You should. Maybe I'll have to go with you soon. You'll be the expert. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that means it's my turn. I feel like I'm going to be a little all over the place right now. That's okay. Um. Okay. So I had found so many notes on the person that I chose. You did mention that you kind of picked your person based on, you know, kind of like my style and what I'm into. You thought I would like her. Mm-hmm. And, um... I also changed my person because when I found her, I was like, I think Melissa will like relate and be behind this lady. Um, so I am going to do Hedy Lamar. Are you familiar? Oh God. Um, I am not entirely familiar. Okay. But my old work BFF, Libby, used to give me constant women like uh-huh. recommendations that I would pile on a giant list and one of them is Hedy Lamar. So like Brad mentioned about making sure you had not done the woman I like went through and had to like list every single episode and like triple check because I was so paranoid that you had already done her but I was like I refuse to ask because I don't want to spoil the surprise. <laughs> so I'm glad to have confirmation that you have not have <laughs> done not. Hedy Lamar. Um, so I don't know how much you do know about her from um, your old coworker telling you, but Hedy Lamar is probably most well known as being a really famous drop dead gorgeous actress back in like the 1930s and 40s. Um, she also produced a few movies. Um, some were better than others, but she did have um, a couple like big successes as a producer. 
Um, but the reason that I chose her is that Hedy Lamar it was also an inventor. And one of the inventions that um, she had actually had like tremendous influence on technologies that we are using right this moment. So she's pretty badass. The iPhone? <laughs> yes, she invented the iPhone <laughs> in 1944. <laughs> um, so I'm like trying to figure out the best way to do this. And I think I'm just going to like start from the beginning and go. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to do that. Are you ready? I'm ready. Bring it on. Okay. So Hetty was born Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler. And she was born to a Jewish family in 1914 in Austria. And um, she lived in Vienna, and she lived in a pretty affluent neighborhood of assimilated Jews. So her family was really wealthy. She was, like, pretty cultured, exposed to the arts. They went to, like, the opera and the theater a lot. Um, and so she was kind of always in this, like, world of, of kind of the idea of fame and stardom. Um, but even as a young child, um, her father was always pointing out kind of just like regular old things that you might not think too much of on the street um, and talking about the mechanisms and like the engineering behind how they actually worked. So one example is like a streetcar, like you see it passing by and you don't think much of it, but like what's actually driving that streetcar from A to B, right? Mm -hmm. And so she, at a young age, like just had a really keen interest in how things worked. Um, and at age five, uh, she took apart her music box and like completely reassembled the entire thing. Like, you know, those little like yeah. twisty things. Yeah. So like she was already was just like super curious about everything and really smart. Um, it was also said that like one of her favorite classes when she was growing up was chemistry. So a lot of people think that had she been born in a different era, her life might have taken like a total different trajectory and she might have become a scientist or an engineer. Um, but by her teenage years, she had developed into like a beautiful young teenager developing woman um, and her beauty did not go unnoticed. And so at like 15, she was already, you know, modeling and um, they even, I found they, oh, so I have to interrupt myself I had read like 50 different articles and was like trying to piece them all together and then I was looking for like a podcast or something I could listen to in traffic just yesterday and somehow stumbled onto a PBS documentary about her that just came out in 2017 and it was on Netflix so oh, I watched cool. it last night and was like thank god this like put everything in chronological order for me yeah. and helped me but one of the things they showed which I was like totally shocked by is uh, nude photos that she had taken at the age of 16 but again she lived in this like really like cultured and artistic neighborhood and so that um kind of like those liberties for women were not um necessarily like looked down upon like women in the arts in well, that and society were like known to have like lots of lovers and like well, be yeah. really free with their I bodies like, wasn't this like the same time period as like um um like Heming Heming's way and like oh Hemingway yes yeah and I wasn't so one of those like oh my god she might have been in a, a movie I had seen one time but yeah. there was somebody from Austria during this time period who was very like uh posh and 
you know, Vogue and just yeah. like living this like high life. Ooh, well, you will have to look at a picture of her and let me okay. know if and what movie it was because I'm curious. Well, to see remember if it was that her. movie with uh, what is that fool's name with the broken nose? Paul Newman. <laughs> The blonde, the blonde. Um, <laughs> Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson. What is it called? Moonlight something. Wait, she was born in 1914. No, 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 no. But remember, the, <laughs> no, 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 no. Remember, the, so Luke Wilson. Has oh, a movie like she. Where I know what you're talking goes about. Back into time. <laughs> I was like, um, in, she like, was not Paris, in a movie. France, France, but all these artists were there, like Picasso yes. and Hemingway, and so, he meets like Tallulah, whatever. She rubbed elbows with Picasso, so okay. I think that's definitely possible. Okay, she <laughs> might have been a, uh, one of these characters in that movie. Okay, I, Fuck, I, I can't, can't remember what it's called. What it's called. Midnight, Night, Midnight in Paris. Midnight in Paris. I think I have seen it, but I don't remember a second of it. It's so good. So I'll have to rewatch. Okay. Okay, so nude photos, 16. Here we go. <laughs> so also at the age of 16, she forged a note from her mother that she was ditched in school, um, and she went into an acting studio and tried to get some work. And she um, got a walk-on film role in, like, 15 days. And um, by age, like, 16, 17, she had already had a couple of other, like, really small um, roles in other films. So... In 1993, at age 18, is when she, like, really started to become well-known for a very controversial film called Ecstasy that she was in. And this was the first thing I read when I went, oh, Melissa's going to like her. (laughs) So (laughs) the reason this film was so controversial was because of the number of nude scenes that she was portrayed in, but probably most concerning and controversial to members of the public was the scene in which she simulated an orgasm. So it was basically considered to be like pornographic. And I don't know because I didn't get all the details and I have not seen the movie, but I did read that like the movie is about her playing a neglected young wife to like an indifferent old, older man. And the scene, I know it's like just her face simulating this orgasm so I also wondered if she's supposed to be masturbating because like her husband's not paying attention to her which I'm sure would make it even more controversial at that time so the film was denounced by the Pope um it was banned in the United States but it did win an award in Rome and it was widely regarded as like an artistic work of art um in other countries in Europe Um, But it was also banned by Hitler in Germany. But interestingly enough, it was not because of the nudity, but because its main actress was Jewish, Um, which will play into things later. Interesting. Okay. Um, So later that year, she's still 18. She marries this man named Fritz Mandel, and he's described as like the Henry Ford of Austria. He's 14 years her senior. She's 33 at the time. And he comes from a Jewish father and a Catholic mother. Um, But I read somewhere that he insisted that she convert to Catholicism before their wedding. And I don't think that she actually did, but it's just like a theme of her life is like her having to kind of like suppress her identity a little bit. So she was Jewish? She was Jewish. Um, She was born, but they were kind of like assimilated Jews. So they had like, they were wealthy, they were upper class. Mm -hmm. um, And he was also Jewish. His father was Jewish, but um, he, I think. I honestly might be totally putting my foot in my mouth right now, but I think in like Judaism, if you, if like one of your parents is Jewish to be like truly Jewish, it's your mother. 
that is supposed oh, to be not okay. your father. I could be totally wrong. Maybe you're going to want to edit that out. I don't know. <laughs> I'll look it up. <laughs> yeah, look it up before you throw that in there. Okay. Um, but whatever, he had at least like distanced himself from his Jewish heritage, and he wanted her to do the same. So he was super wealthy, um, and he had ties to Italian fascist leaders and also to Nazis, which is kind of ironic because of his Jewish heritage and hers. Um, it's said that he and Hitler were like never in the same room together because of his Jewish background, but he was an arms dealer. And so he had a lot of like meetings with like Nazi Germans that came to their home um, to sell them military arms. That's gnarly. Yeah. Crazy. So he was super controlling and he was like threatened by her beauty. He always thought that he was, she was like cheating on her or cheating on him or flirting with other men. Um, hilarious. He tried to buy all the copies of that film, <laughs> Ecstasy, like off the market. Wow. <laughs> so okay, that, you're, you're no. a literal lunatic. Yeah. So um, it kind of like ended up, she was kind of like living in a prison. So eventually she decides to flee their marriage and their country. And um, I don't have this in my notes, but I'll try and recall as best as I can from the documentary I watched. Her son tells a story of her fleeing, which is like so ridiculous. I don't know how much I believe of it, but they lived in this huge estate with like 25 guest rooms, like a castle. And um, apparently she was like a part of the hiring of all the help around the house. So like maids and stuff. And so she like developed this plan and she hired a maid that looked kind of like her and then she like dosed the eight the maid with like sleeping pills in her tea or something and took her uniform dressed up as her grabbed a coat and put all her jewels and like nice stuff and like rode away on a bicycle in the middle of the night oh my I really hope that's true <laughs> so I don't know how much of that is accurate but she rode away into the night never to be seen that's by him again lady Yes. <laughs> so she goes to London. It's 1937 now. And she sees an MGM movie. So, you know, when you go to the movies, there's like the big lion intro. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I need to be in one of those movies. I'm going to America. So she finds an American film agent who introduces her to Louis B. Mayer, who is like the third partner of MGM. So it's Metro, Goldwyn, and Mayer. And he's in London, and he's basically there to, like, scout actors and actresses for low fees. He's like, everyone's trying to flee Nazi Germany, so I'm going to come here, and I'm going to acquire all this cheap talent and bring them back to Hollywood. So he offers her $100 a week to come back to Hollywood and work for him. And she says no, that she's worth more than that, and she's not going. So they part ways. He heads back to New York on the ship Normandy. And then she's like, oh, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so she goes and she buys a ticket for the ship. And she hops on the Normandy. And she basically goes there with the plan that, like, she is going to be seen and make him know that, like, he needs to have her. So he put, she puts on, like, spends, like, all, the last of her money on this ticket, puts on her nicest ball gown, and goes to, like, the dining hall and just, like, everyone's glasses drop like all the men are staring at her including Louis B. Mayer and um he realizes like he has to have her on um on his team and she ends up securing a $500 a week contract Whoa. and yes so she that fucking did her negotiating that what's that that was probably a ton of money 
Yeah. Well, time. I mean, think about too. He initially offered her a hundred dollars. Yeah. So that's five hundred. Yeah. You know, five times as much, five hundred percent more. I don't know about that math. <laughs> we don't do math on this podcast. <laughs> I'm usually good at math, but the wine's fucking me up. Um. <laughs> so okay, she gets to New York, and then she ends up in Hollywood. Now she's like 22, 23. So. Then she ends up being cast in this movie, Algier, um, with Charles Boyer. And I don't know anything about this movie, but it was, like, a huge success. And that just, like, shot her to stardom in the United States and internationally. And um, she's now, like, on the cover of all these movie magazines. All the, like, famous actresses of, like, that time started, like, parting their hair like her and, like, dressing similar to her. Um, And... I totally want you to actually I have a picture of her and I'm going to show it to you right now while I tell you this but um they ended up basing Snow White and Catwoman off of her oh wow yeah so she was just like drop dead gorgeous like everyone wanted to be her beautiful yeah she was I can't pretty. I don't know about Catwoman because she I don't know like the cartoon character Catwoman but I totally see Snow White when I oh, look at 100%. her so um, she becomes really famous. She, as I mentioned, started, like, rubbing elbows with all these um, heavy hitters in the, like, arts and, uh, like, political industries of that time. So um, some, some name dropping. She was hanging out with Picasso, Charlie Chap- Chaplin, and even JFK before he became president. Um, so at 23, she is remarried to a screenwriter named Jean Marquis. Uh, and he wasn't, like, someone that people expected to see her with. He was kind of, like, pudgy and uh, not the most attractive guy. And he was a little bit older. But I think she, like, genuinely liked him and thought he had talent and was smart. Um, and they end up adopting a son together. But within months of dating or marriage, he starts dating other actresses. Oh, great. Great. Fat, yeah, he's a great guy. <laughs> Adopts a kid and then fucking yes. bails for other chicks. Sweet. Amazing. So now it's, like, one year after she had this, like, huge successful movie, but, like, she's not getting a ton of work, and her marriage is failing, and she's, like, unhappy with MGM. Um, They're giving her bad scripts. So she petitions for a kind of small role in this movie called Boomtown with Clark Gable, which she ends up getting, and it becomes, like, a huge hit, and so it kind of, like, secures her career for the next few years. Um, But I didn't know this was some interesting – knowledge that I gained in watching the documentary last night is that um, a lot of actors and actresses, um, at least during this time, were signed on to contracts and were like severely overworked and underpaid. Um, So she was on a seven-year contract with MGM and they'd be made to work like six to seven days a week into the evening and were basically being fed like speed like diet pills and shit shit. to like keep them up and then would be given like sleeping pills and stuff when they had time to yeah so just like a super unhealthy like brain lifestyle yeah and that'll come up later um on but she the the later part of her life is a little darker than some of these highs and i think that that whole like time of her life had a lot to do with it for sure um 
So she's, again, working six to seven days a week. She's working into the nighttime. But outside of work, she really isn't sleeping that much because she is working on her latest inventions. (laughs) So (laughs) she has not lost her love um, for, like, exploration and invention and just, like, tinkering with shit. And so um, by 1940, she has a whole, like, inventing table set up in her house. And I don't even really know what an inventing table entails but I have run across that term a lot. So I'd imagine it like a wood shop, but just like a workshop with lots of technical stuff. Um, She even has a small version of it in her trailer on set to like play with when she um, has a break from filming and everything. So um, another man that crosses her path uh, is Howard Hughes and he is an aviation tycoon and Um, It's kind of funny. They were said to be romantically involved at some point, but uh, it's thought that their relationship was a little more like cerebral and based on like, you know, intelligence and smarts compared to her other relationships. And she described him as one of the worst lovers she's ever had. Oh, great. (laughs) Um, But they really like jived in their like passion for innovation. And um, again, he was in aviation and he wanted to make his planes faster. Um, And one like really neat thing that I read about a lot that she did is she went out and she found scientific books and journals and she looked at the fastest fish and the fastest birds and the way that their bodies were shaped and looking at like aerodynamics and hydrodynamics and basically like suggested changes to the shape of his planes um, to increase speed. So just like an example of she's smart. She knows what's up. Yeah. And like what a like crazy interest. Yeah. Yeah, so cool. So um, she invented a couple of other things that, like, never really took off. One of them was an improved traffic stoplight. No more information to give you from there. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's being actually used. I kind of think no, but she did something that improved a traffic stoplight. I think a lot of her inventions, like, weren't actually adopted, but they were cool. Um, Another one that was a little bit, like kind of landed flat but is still interesting she was really trying to create a soda tablet so during world war ii there was um it was really difficult to um to deliver goods to certain countries you know that like germany had their ports blocked and uh so as a way for like soldiers and people living in those countries to have like coca-cola she wanted to develop a soda tablet that you could like dissolve and water and And so she did it and i think i read somewhere that she admitted herself that it kind of just tasted like alka seltzer and i think um what was neat about the documentary that i watched is that there is a lot of recordings from her um this guy that had gotten a hold of her later in her life and interviewed her in like the 1990s and she said something in there about like the reason it being so unsuccessful is that you couldn't predict like the quality of water that it was being added to so she's like sometimes it would dissolve in the bottom sometimes it would dissolve in the middle sometimes it would dissolve in the top that's so that's she admitted that it was like totally not successful but again she's like these are the things that she's thinking of right but then the the company airborne like gypped her of her idea and created airborne well and that's like yeah and it's like alka-seltzer is the same thing so i the whole like water quality thing obviously is still a factor today so there must be Mm. ways around it yeah um but those are like the type of things that she was thinking of 
Um, so now we're getting to the good goods. So it's World War II. And remember that Hetty comes from a Jewish family. And um, it's not looking good for the Allies at this time. It looks like Germany might win the war. And Hetty is feeling a lot of guilt because she is in Hollywood. Um, I didn't mention, but during that first marriage, her father died, who she was really close with, which I think was maybe something that like pushed her to leave um, mm. and kind of change her life. Um, but her mom was still in Austria and she really wanted to bring her to California, but she hadn't been able to. So she felt a lot of guilt, um, just kind of like sitting around and profiting from videos or movies during the war. And so she wanted a way to contribute. And so during the war, um, one challenge that the allies were facing is that the Germans were intercepting their communications to torpedoes. So like submarines would send a torpedo somewhere and Germany would either be able to intercept it so that they knew, you know, what was happening or they'd be able to interfere and like jam it so that that communication couldn't happen at all. And so Hetty basically is inspired to find a way for um, submarines to communicate with, to, with torpedoes without interruption. So then she meets in 1940, a man named George Ann Thiel. I'm not sure if that's how you say his name, probably not. He's a super famous pianist and they start talking about this and basically decide that they're going to like join forces to create something to like contribute to the war. And so they end up making three inventions all together, all meant to like help the allies fight Germany. One of which was this method of communicating from the submarines to the torpedoes. So it was kind of like her idea, but George was kind of like the one who put it all into place because he had just recently done this like huge, like musical performance or composition that involved the synchronizing of like 16 different pianos. And so they basically used like that technology to support her idea. And so from the two of them was born frequency hopping. And I'm going to do a really what? shitty job of explaining this right now. So for all the scientists out there, cut me some slack. <laughs> but basically... Believe me, there is no scientist listening. Okay. <laughs> what about Brad? <laughs> Brad, Brad can write up a Brad, page don't report judge me. After the episode's okay. done. So I'm going to try and explain this in like the most basic way for people to understand, but also for me to actually be able to explain it, is that to imagine if... Um, like think of like channels, right? So if your submarine is communicating to a torpedo on channel two, well, if Germany gets on channel two, they can either access your communications or again, they can like interfere with it. So think of that channel as being like a frequency. Her idea was if you have multiple frequencies and you're bouncing around between them in like a certain pattern that both the ship or the submarine and the torpedo are on, that those can't be interfered with because if someone does successfully interfere with your channel a second later it's moving it's to gone, another yeah. one and okay. so it's called frequency hopping or sped spectrum technology so um george and hetty eventually oh one other thing i heard somewhere that this kind of like motivated george's involvement but i did some sleuthing and the timeline does not add up 
but I thought it was interesting to note that George's little brother, who is 12 years younger than him, um, his name was Henry, and he was actually the first American killed in World War II when his helicopter was shot down by Soviets. Oh, wow. So in the film, they said, like, that was kind of his motivation is, like, revenge. Mm -hmm. But I think he and Hetty were actually working on this before that happened, but still kind of crazy. Um, and obviously, like, motivated him further um, to support the Allies and stop Germany. Um, so, boom, boom, where am I? Okay, they got a patent. Um, in 1941, they applied for it, and it was granted in 1942. So they go to the Navy, and they take them this idea, and the Navy's like, you want us to put a fucking piano on this? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> They're basically like, no, this is ridiculous. And um, Hetty wants to continue, and George is kind of like, mm, like, I did my thing. It's good. And um, they eventually donate the patent to the National Inventors Council with the understanding that if the military does ever use it, that they would be paid for it. So again, Hetty like still wants to be participating. Um, and the Navy basically says to her, you know, you'd be helping a lot more if you left all this like inventing and stuff to the experts. And if you could just go out and sell some, some war bonds, that would be the best you could do. So, oh, as okay. insulting as that is, <laughs> Hetty did go out and start working as a bond clerk, and she, um, it is said, ended up selling about $25 million worth of war bonds, which in today's money would be about $343 million. Oh so, yeah, she would go out and, like, perform for troops and stuff, but she'd also use, like, her celebrity prowess to, like, she'd, like, sell, like, a kiss on the cheek or, like, a picture with her, you know? And she raised, like, an insane amount of money to help the allies. So, oh again, as fucking rude as those guys were for telling her that, she was like, you know what? I'm going to do everything that I can to, to help us win this war. So I thought that was pretty cool. That is cool. Um, so flash forward. Um, in 1969, it's kind of all like fizzled out. Hetty ends up writing to a friend in the Navy to ask kind of like what happened with the patent. And they end up finding out that frequency hopping was eventually put to use during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, all the ships that were running blockade to Cuba were all equipped with this technology. And they had kind of, um, but oh, what happened is that I guess like patents expire and um, it, this apparently wasn't done during the life of the patent because it expired in 1959. Um, so they basically said, you don't get any money. Wow. And yeah. Um, and there's actually evidence that it was given to a contractor around 1955 who was tasked to create a sono buoy, um, which is pretty much like buoys that are deployed to like communicate information back to like ships or like aircraft. So if that had happened in 1955, it would have been during the lifespan of the patent and she should have been entitled to that money. Yeah. Um, they just didn't give it to her. Yes, and I can't find it in my many pages of notes, but there is also some law that you have, like, six years to, like, sue or something, and, of course, Hetty didn't know this, so she wasn't able to do that. Um, so, oh, yeah, here it is. Six years to sue after expiration. Hetty did not know. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, after this time, I like wrote all these notes about this part of Hetty's life. And then I was like, you know what? I don't really even want to talk about it that much because 
I think that she was super awesome and the later part of her life was not so bright. But just to give a little bit an idea of what kind of happened in the next few years after all of this, um, she starts to feel kind of betrayed by Hollywood. You know, she's obviously like aging. She's losing her looks and all her stardom. She has had a number of failed marriages. So Hetty was actually married six times. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Thought you'd like that. <laughs> um, so she had a few failed marriages. And then she also, it seemed like she kind of got in a weird place with drugs. There are some pictures of her. Like, she looks like she's fucking tweaked out. And I think that a lot of that had to do with those, like, pet pills that were being provided to her when she was working in the movie industry. Um, I don't really know a whole lot about this, but now I'm like dying to learn more. But it was also mentioned that she was a patient of Dr. Feelgood, um, who saw like hundreds of patients in the 1950s, like celebrities, um, and then lost his medical license in 1974. And he was basically like advertising, giving people like vitamin B shots to like pep them up and give them life, all these vitamins. He was really just injecting them with like 40 milligrams of meth. So she was fucked up, but like not really because I don't, I feel like she, it was a result of the system and this like culture that she was a part of, you know what I mean? Like unknowingly, she kind of got like sucked into this lifestyle. Um, She also started having plastic surgery at the age of 40. And interestingly enough, she was kind of an innovator in the plastic surgery realm as well, that she'd be like, I want you to do an incision here and take something from here, but cut me here so no one will see my scar. And like actually had some like pretty impressive surgeries done to the point that like people were going and requesting like, I want what Hetty got, like, you know. But as we see with a lot of people who kind of like fall into that what you might say is an addictive habit. Um, Hetty ended up having some like really botched plastic surgery and not looking great. And I think for someone that had like been recognized their whole life for their looks, um, that was, I'm sure really, really hard. Um, and she was also arrested for shoplifting. Nice. Kind of Winona Ryder-ish. Like she had a lot (laughs) of money and she like had money on her and she ended up beginning acquitted, but she like lost her last role in a film because of it. So her late life just was like kind of dark and she kind of ended up becoming a recluse. And I think a lot of it had to do with her looks. Right. Um, but eventually, um, people in like the communication industry start to recognize the work that she's done. And I could not find his name for the life of me, but there is actually, it was read on the documentary I watched that um, one of the guys, I think it was the guy who created the Sono, Sono buoy, like wrote a, a something acknowledging Hetty basically for like her contributions to what he had invented that like it wouldn't have happened without her. Um, So she starts getting recognition and actually, like, winning some awards later in her life. Um, But, again, she, like, doesn't want to come out at all. Um, She was awarded some award that I can't find the name of. And uh, it was pretty funny. She didn't want to go, as I mentioned. And so her son went to accept this award for her. And it is so hilarious. This is a little off topic. But his, he's talking about her, and his phone starts ringing in the middle of his speech. And he's like, oh, my God, this is humiliating. And he pulls out his phone, it's and her. it's her. <laughs> and he answers it. 
And she's like, hey, how did it go? And he's like, how did it go? I'm standing up here right now. It was really funny. Um, But he had, like, a recording of her, like, you know, what do you want to say? And um, I think it was really special for her to finally be recognized. Wait, Um, does she not want to go because she's just all freaked out about her botched face? Yeah. I think she just – I think she felt kind of, like, betrayed um, by this, like, life that she had came and thought she wanted you know and I think she also was really really homesick um I think she wanted to go back to Vienna really badly and again she had kind of like I also heard something that when she started working for MGM part of the contract for all the um actors and actresses was that they weren't allowed to like discuss their religion or their religious affiliation and so I think you know her Jewish heritage was probably really meaningful to her and also like a way to connect with her family. But she yeah. kind of like hid it from the world because of a number of different pressures from like Hollywood and, you know, the political climate and the national climate. Yeah. So I think I she feel was like just it's like again sad. one of those things where she, you you like you want you see this stardom and it's so appealing and then you mm-hmm. get it and you're like, Holy shit, I'm so like uh, removed and distant yeah. from the things that really matter to me now. And yeah. I've like turned into this whirlwind of investing in things that don't matter. And now I'm feeling shitty about it. Yeah. Ugh. So, um, it sounds like though, when she was in her eighties, she lived a long life. Um, she passed in 2000, but she kind of started to like reflect and acknowledge that like your contributions are meaningful your contributions to the world are meaningful, like with or without acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to bring it kind of all the way back to the present and the reason why I said that Hetty has actually impacted you and I and this very podcast that we're recording right now is that Hetty's um, uh, frequency hopping sped... Sp- <laughs> I'm start that over. <laughs> Hetty's frequency hopping spread spectrum technology is the technology that was the foundation and inspiration for GPS, Bluetooth, and Wi-Fi technologies. What? So everything that we're doing right now is with great gratitude to Hetty Lamar. Um, And so she's... this is frequency... Yeah, so the reason that we can go uninterrupted without competing with, like, all the other people that are on their phones right now or trying to get on the internet is because we are bouncing around between all these frequencies so that we're not all trying to – it increases the the bandwidth. That's nuts. Yeah, and it's also a reason how you, like, have secure internet because people can't necessarily, like, just hop on your computer and see what you're doing because, again, you're, like, bouncing around and to identify – those patterns is obviously like much more difficult than just hopping on one, one frequency that's that someone's fucking, using. I can't even like my brain can't even like. So that's why I tried to watch like five YouTube's <laughs> YouTube videos before we talked. And I was like, Oh my God, how the fuck am I going to explain this? Like I'm going to, I started watching one and I was like too much. I can't. Um, no, like, it makes sense, but like trying to visualize <laughs> it and understand yeah. it like from an educated place is very hard. Yeah. So, um, the award, I just found my notes that she was given just to jump back. Um, it said today that, uh, military satellite systems, which provide protected communications for the president 
and high-ranking military officers and like super duper important nuclear command and control communications all rely on this technology that Hetty created. So that award that she got was awarded to her by the Navy and Milstar, thanking for her for her idea and her contributions to um, like military defense. And so since then, she has been recognized like a number of times. Um, after death, she was inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Um, while I was like searching around online, it looks like there's a lot of great like STEM and engineering like scholarships and awards named after her for like young women in um, you know tech and uh, STEM. Um, and yeah, she's just pretty fucking badass. And so today it's estimated that the market value of her and George's invention is about $30 billion. Whoa. Which she never got any of. Wow. Yeah. That so is not even her kids, even after she was like awarded no, like all this credit? Because of the patent expiration. What fucking, fucking dickholes. I yeah. swear to God. So I wish that I had these like lined up and ready to go for you but one of the things that like turned me on to her the most and I knew you would love were some of these great quotes of hers and most of them are not about really inventing or anything but about like not being inferior to a man and like kind of mocking this like like ridiculous infatuation with beauty um so I'm just gonna read a couple of them to you because yeah. I thought you would like them bring it on um so let's see. I just passed one that I thought was the good one. Oh, this was the first one I read, which I thought was hilarious. She said, any girl can look glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. So <laughs> I thought that one was good. Um, and then this was another one that stood out to me. She said, again, married six times. She said, I must quit marrying men who feel inferior to me. Somewhere there must be a man who could be my husband and not feel inferior. And I think that really was like her struggle. She was so smart. And I think that people just saw her for her beauty and thought that she was nothing more than that. And then and they I got think, her and they were like, oh shit, we didn't sign yeah, up for this. Yeah. And I think that a lot of her relationships, she felt like they didn't even try and like really get to know her on a like below a surface level and so I feel like she probably a lot throughout her life like lacked a uh, real connection because sure. no one was really like prepared to give that to her yeah so Aww. yeah so that's Hedy Lamar. I love that you ended on quotes that's always my thing yeah that, like I said, I stumbled across her quotes, and that was when I'm like, okay, Melissa's going like to like this girl. They just <laughs> sum up the, like, character so much more, like, intensely, totally. I feel. I love it. Oh, my God. I loved it all. I will admit that until I watched the documentary, I hadn't heard about kind of the, like, darker part of her later life, and I was bummed to hear that that okay. she struggled in that but way like, but i also feel like it's important to like acknowledge that it is. you know Everybody that was fucking dark parts of yeah. their life and i feel yeah. like that's what makes everyone human if we mm -hmm. just covered women that were perfect constantly exactly. it wouldn't be natural or realistic for anyone to even be able to relate to it yeah and that's what's wild is is that in all these articles and stuff that i'd found i never read anything that kind of mentioned that part of her life so pitch um there is a biography written about Hetty, but I've read a lot of um, 
articles and also seen some things I think in the documentary that like they basically hired a ghostwriter and then when the documentary or the biography came out she like was totally appalled by it and didn't think it was like a reflection of her so don't read her biography oh that sucks (laughs) but um the documentary on Netflix just came out in 2017 and it's called Bombshell like the Hedy Lamar story or something like that. And you just watched this like yesterday? Yes. Nice. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm going to watch it this weekend. Yeah. It was good. So, um, yeah. I'm so happy you covered her. Yeah. I think I talked for an hour. So sorry. No, you didn't. Uh, you did not talk for an hour. (laughs) And I, I had to, I actually cut like so much of it. Well, see, that's like, that's the thing. It's hard. You really don't know until you've done it a couple of times. Like my first episode doing Yoko Ono, it was like 90 (laughs) hours long. I included so much information that I realized later wasn't completely relevant. And so you really just have to, you know, you just do it a couple of times and then you start to kind of get the rhythm and understand like the flow of just the presentation part but you fucking killed it you did an awesome job and i am so stoked i learned about her well i am stoked i learned about lynn and now we both have movies to watch this i know right (laughs) (laughs) okay i have instant astrology guesses oh right i totally forgot about it okay you know what hers is i do and what's hilarious is that i thought it was a different sign until like five minutes before we started (laughs) because i fucked up her birthday Okay, so I have three guesses starting okay. from the one I think the most that it is, and then second and third. Okay. So don't tell me, like, I'm going to say the first one and either say yes or no, and then I'm going to do the second one. So don't tell me what it okay. is until I'm done okay. with my guesses. But my first guess is Aquarius. No. Damn it. All right, my second guess is Gemini. No. No. <laughs> Those are such like absolute lands for me on this. I'm planet. reading the de- the descriptions now of both of them. Oh, I can totally see that based on my two word traits from dummies.com. Then my third <laughs> guess is Scorpio. Woo! Yes! That's it. <laughs> it wasn't my first or second though. So you did hear because I, I told you when I guessed Scorpio for yours also, but Passion and intensity are the two traits that I have written here. And I do think that those describe her. But again, if anyone would also like to learn from the dummies.com they're (laughs) referencing, Aries is energy and initiative. Totally see. And Gemini is verse. No, I said Aquarius. Oh, shit. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Originality and vision. Um, wait, now I, Gemini was the other one you said, right? Yeah, Aquarius okay. and Gemini. Versatility and curiosity. So I can also see those. How would you describe all those in more than two well, words? So <laughs> like, I, why did you guess them? Aquariuses are known to be like, like we're all on planet Earth and they're like a hundred miles in the sky, 10 steps ahead of people in creativity and innovation. And they're also huge humanitarians. Like they give okay. a fuck about like, humanity as a whole and then gemini they just have seven billion thousand hobbies at any given <laughs> moment that like, they, they like hop around from six trillion things and they're always like it's always a new project or a new plan and so that just also kind of seemed kind of like her and then i only thought scorpio because they like i mean other than them just being extremely intense they're very like transformative is sometimes the word to describe them where they like 
they make an impact that like changes shit. Okay. But so I thought uh, she was I a mean, Sagittarius until like five minutes before. We I would have never thought that. It wasn't. It had nothing to do with her traits, mind just, you, because I don't know them. It the was wrong. just by her birthday, and I was like, "Oh fuck, that's not right." I like had to cross it out in my paper, and I was I like, "I would have been like triple Sag. That doesn't make any sense." Really. Yeah. Oh my so, god, that was so. It was good. a close call. <laughs> well, that was very awesome that was super fun i know so excited i loved all of it thanks thanks thank you thank you it was an honor <laughs> it, it was an honor having you for episode 36 i know that's crazy it really is crazy go I get them tiger it's just gonna, i'm just keeping it going <laughs> keeping it figure going it out as we roll along well i thought that was super fun i definitely felt like i was doing homework for school like a book it report homework. it literally is and homework. then I was like strut so I did laugh because I know that um we are both Virgos but <laughs> you always remind me that you think I'm more of a Leo <laughs> but I do identify with many of the Virgo traits and on my cheat sheet here one of the or the two things listed are analysis and perfectionism and I was like that is me literally I spent like two hours like today, like last minute being like, oh, fuck all my notes. Like I need to rewrite them. I need to print out all these articles. I'm like, this is not right. It's all out of order. <laughs> and I was like stressing and I will. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so I was like, experience. I feel like I did a book report and I did not <laughs> allow myself enough time. And I just like procrastinated like our Eleanor Roosevelt report freshman what? year Eleanor Roosevelt report you do not remember that when we did fucking Adderall and I fell asleep and then I copied your whole report <laughs> are you serious in the dorms did I have a good report you got a better grade on it than me huh <laughs> I think I did but I copied your therapist <laughs> did you copy it verbatim no, obviously I changed it, but I like I copied all the context. And remember, we both took Adderall for the first time, and you were like cracked out all night, and I fell asleep like thirty minutes later. <laughs> okay, I'm very happy you remember this. I don't completely remember. What I have a lot of missing memories from And why were we talking about her? I don't remember what class it was for because I don't even think that we had that many classes together. Um, but I know it was Eleanor Roosevelt and we were supposed to read this book and neither of us did, of course. Oh no, I remember this. Yeah. I think I read like a good portion of that book. I, well, I think you read it that night on oh, Adderall. I read it the night on Adderall. <laughs> Cause it wasn't like super it. long. It was only like 150 pages, but we literally had not started the book like the day <laughs> before it was due. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I don't, I can completely edit this out, but I have another memory. We were very strategic in college. Yes. Because I don't remember what class this was, but we would show up completely unprepared. Oh, where we not... would sit? Yes. Yes. I remember. You don't have to edit it out. I think it's brilliant and it should be shared because we are innovators. Do <laughs> you want to explain? Um, well, I don't want to steal it. <laughs> I don't. Okay. Well, I can't. I feel like I can only remember partial. Bits okay. Of this. Well, I can explain then. Okay. Basically, we would strategically sit so that we could both see each other's papers, but we could also both see 
at least one other good person to copy. So essentially we were like both benefiting from copying two smart people by copying each other. So I was copying Melissa or you, I'm like talking to the audience now. Sorry. I was copying you and you were copying me, but really we were were both copying the two other people in the class. What class was that? I don't know. I feel like we like barely even had classes together. What was all this homework and test we were doing? <laughs> uh, I have no idea. They had to have been like, God, what classes did we have together? I have no, no clue. <laughs> no, like, so, what would Eleanor Roosevelt have been? I don't think I took any history classes. It must have been maybe like one. I think we had to take one history class in college, and that was probably it. I just remember that I had to write an essay on Obama, and I didn't do it, and I failed. And then I remember I also had to write an essay on a word that, no joke, San Francisco State, 2007 or 8, mm-hmm. English class. The instruction was to pick a word that you want to pro- like to reclaim. So like a word that's out in society that's being abused and you want to take that word back and own it for yourself and then write a whole essay on what it means to you and why you're reclaiming it. Okay. Do you know what word I chose? Cunt. Yes! <laughs> all coming back to me college (laughs) the word cunt amazing i also the other day somehow stumbled across an essay i had written in college about all of the lesbianism in the sailor moon cartoon (laughs) so you know what things were weird but you know what else just came to my mind huh remember when we would go to those cinema classes on saturday and just sleep through the whole thing oh my god yes <laughs> i forgot about that why didn't we take those classes we did have classes together but that was on a but, saturday but there was a reason for it why did we i think we needed to make up credits and so we picked up i think that like is what it was it was like a long... one credit class <laughs> It was like a 12-hour long cinema class on a Saturday. I actually like just recently acquired my transcript. I can't even remember why, but I'm going to look back at it and try and like piece these stories together (laughs) of some of these weird classes we were in. I really am curious to know what the Eleanor Roosevelt (laughs) essay was for. I'm so happy that you brought that up. Because now that you mention it, I do remember this. And I remember you ended up getting a better I forgot about that part and that's, Definitely. And you literally copied my whole essay. I think I got like a C plus and you got like a B. I think that is, I think I might have got a B minus, but yeah, it was a C and B range. I rem- I do remember that. I You're like, the what the fuck? Grade. Cracked out all night and got the C. And I was just over there snoring in the dorm. <laughs> oh, man. Oh man! Uh, well, listen. Now stuff. we're thirty, and we're doing book reports, and <laughs> it's going well. Who do we send? We should send this to whoever that teacher was that uh, gave us that assignment. Look at us now, Ma. <laughs> Talking about great women and great lives. So be like, and now we're not guys. doing Adderall. We're just drinking wine. <laughs> man how the world has turned full circle yes well that was really really fun 
I had the best time ever. Well, thank you for joining me. Thank you. I had fun. And that was the end of episode 36. Woo, woo. Woo, woo. I'm almost a 40. <laughs> woo. That's so exciting. And Maybe you should 50. have some champagne for episode 40. I know. You would think that this sisterhood of the bottomless mimosa would ever have champagne, but <laughs> who wants to drink champagne I didn't even think at about 9 that. o'clock at night? Yeah, I don't even like drinking mimosas in the morning. I mean, like one mimosa, but I'd rather have a Bloody Mary or something. Or I'd just a glass have, of wine, a glass I'd of rosé. I'd rather have an Irish coffee. Yeah, totally. <laughs> mimosas never do anybody good. They really don't. There's a really good meme on the internet that's like, Anytime you start off with bottomless mimosas, you're texting a dude at oh. one in the afternoon saying, <laughs> you, you still up? <laughs> I love those. Yes. Very accurate. Yes. <sighs> All right. All right. Well, signing off. Okay. That was awesome. Well, we don't have to hang up, but oh, I'm stop okay. recording. <laughs> now I just unmute myself. Okay. All right. Thanks Bye. for joining. <laughs> Bye.